Good evening, friends. Good to see you. Uh, I'd like to continue the theme that I've been bringing forward for the last couple of times I've spoken here. You might remember in July, I spoke of radical attention. Like what would it take to actually bring the same kind of attention to many of our activities in a day, the same kind of attention that we bring to the breath or to the activity in our zendo. And then a few weeks after that, I spoke with you about uh, the forms themselves as an invitation, the invitation to be congenial with the Dharma as Tomoe Katagiri has spoken it. Uh, I love that word, being congenial being in accord with indicates that there's a kind of a heart opening going on. And then just last week, I spoke with you about no gaining mind. <clears throat> and that Zen, as Catherine said it, in Zen, you have to pay the full price. <laughs> there's no treats and no discounts in Zen. Uh, so I'd like to pick up those things and weave them together into um, perhaps an exploration of what it would take to be freed from the constraints of our discursive thinking. And in a way, therefore, freed from the constraints of ego. We still have ego. We still have our conditions of our lives, but they uh, can become less constraining. We're free to be just this one, um, th this ego with these conditions, meeting these conditions with radical attention. So part of what allows us to do that is becoming aware of the stories we tell ourselves. And I, I'm drawing now from a blog, um, at least part of this is from a blog by a person named Leo Babauta, who writes quite um, carefully and succinctly about Zen practice in everyday life. You might look him up. So in this becoming aware of the stories we tell ourselves, um, Leo describes <clears throat> what he calls a hidden mechanism that creates unhappiness or sometimes frustration, a hidden mechanism that perpetuates habits because the habits themselves are rewarded by the mechanism. <laughs> they want to persist because it's a self-rewarding cycle. And uh, in, I would say in our world, most commonly, most people are not actually aware of that mechanism or um, aware of that habit of mind. But in our practice, this is what is the mind opening, heart opening, body opening experience of Zazen, allowing us to pay attention to the forms, to the mind, uh, to no gaining mind. So we get to be among the rare people in the world 
who can become aware of this habit of mind or this mechanism. It's always happening in all of us, whether we want it to or not. <laughs> and it's just the stories we tell ourselves, our narrative about what's happening. On the one hand, you know, this is really just a function of mind. The job of the of discursive thought, in a way, is to make sense of the sensory input that the body and mind are receiving. And in a way, the mind is busy stringing things together in order to make sense of them. So this is the story-making function of mind. Uh, it becomes a pitfall when the story-making function of mind becomes primary and we lose track of the larger narrative in which this is occurring. So we do it all day long. We tell ourselves stories about what's happening in our lives, about what other people are doing, what other people are thinking, about ourselves even. We, when I call them a story, uh, it doesn't mean that they're false or that they aren't based at least partly on truth. It just means that I've constructed a narrative based on my experience. It's based on my perspective of the world around me that's conditioned by my culture, by my family. All of that conditioning comes along with the narrative that I'm creating into an interpretation of the facts as I see them or as I hear them, as I perceive them. So it's not necessarily false. It's just not necessarily the whole truth either. <laughs> it's just one perspective. It's a, what we would call a partial view. Um, and because it's one perspective, it's limited and incomplete. Therefore, if we hold on to a story as if it's true, we're in a cycle of ignorance. Mm -hmm. And um, for those who have studied the 12-fold chain with me and with us, uh, you know, the ignorance is kind of the pivotal point. Ignorance, making contact with the world through a variety of mechanisms that we have, which becomes longing and aversion, which contributes to a cycle of suffering for ourselves and others. It doesn't necessarily have to go that way, but that's the typical cycle. So Catherine often said it would be uh, provisional truth. Like we might take the narrative and say, okay, that's provisionally true until some other evidence comes along and we have to modify our view. So part of the provisionally true means that we're open to modifying the view when we get a little bit more information. But our habit typically is that we find evidence that confirms our view which simply reinforces the story, hence the cycling of our suffering for ourselves and others. So we could be uh, constantly asking, what is this? Maybe just that question <laughs> is enough. What is this? And further, maybe a little deeper, as I mentioned last week, what is the basis of this? Out of what are my perceptions growing? 
So this is the experience of Kensho, I would say. This is the experience of seeing into our own true nature. What is this? What is the basis of this? And the layers begin to um, become porous. So we come across multiple situations in any given day. And um, a person could look at the same situation and tell a very different story than I would tell. Basically, the same event creates two or more different narratives. So the trouble with a narrative, when we cling to it, is that it creates a polarity of some kind, good or bad, right or wrong, better or worse. And in our practice, we call this longing and aversion. Mm -hmm. And as you know from the Song of the Trusting Mind, um, when longing and aversion are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against. The struggle of likes and dislikes is the disease of the mind. And please hear that not as disease as in illness, but as dis-ease or unease. The struggle of uh, longing and aversion creates unease in the mind. So a little bit later in that same teaching, Song of the Trusting Mind, just let go now of clinging mind. <laughs> it sounds so easy to do, and it's not so easy to do. So we've begun to speak of it at Santa Cruz Zen Center and now other places as well. Just uh, loosen the grip just a little bit. You don't have to let it go all the way. Just loosen the grip a little bit. And that loosening feels so um, congenial <laughs> that it becomes encouraging to loosen the grip a little bit more. So just loosen the grip of clinging mind and reality reveals itself as it is. You are already walking freely, undisturbed. And so my first thought is, no, I'm not undisturbed. <laughs> and that very thought is disturbing me, you know? So there, the longing and aversion occurs in every pivotal moment. I, no, I can't agree with that phrase. No, not that phrase. So just loosen the grip on clinging mind and re reality reveals itself as it is. <clears throat> You are already walking freely undisturbed. Last week I made reference to this as, um, I forget exactly how I said it, but something like uh, becoming still in Zazen allows us to see through karma. Mm -hmm. And in that very process, the Dharma is revealed. Mm -hmm. So, Everywhere we turn, this is occurring. And advertisements prey on this activity of the human mind. For example, dish soap. Let's just use dish soap. Okay, the opening scene of an advertisement for dish soap, there's a pile of dirty dishes. Then they show their dish soap being used. 
and then the next scene is a pile of clean dishes. So I turn that into a story and I go, okay, I want a pile of clean dishes. I want my <laughs> sink to be cleared. So I'm going to buy that soap because that soap is going to help my narrative, right? So advertisements rely upon this mechanism, the story making function of mind. Um, there is a, an aspect of my life that you may or may not know of that I'm a personal trainer. So I engage with people about their fitness endeavors. And relatively often I hear the stories about why one would pro procrastinate their fitness routine or why one would engage with it for a while and then it kind of falls off. So, mm, one of the things that I would like to do with that with someone is to say, you know, you've actually been working really hard. You've gotten a lot done. That activity that you were doing actually is a fitness oriented activity. You've been gardening, you've been um, loading firewood, you've been digging, you know, you've been walking, you know, whatever it is that you've been doing, that activity is actually fitness oriented. All that excitement, or someone has been busy learning something new and their exercise routine is not so exciting to them anymore because this thing that they're learning is much more interesting. So all that excitement about learning something or all of that work that you have been doing, oh, now you need a rest. How about if you take a rest before you exercise and then have exercise be something fun? And as in many contexts, if it's fun, we're going to want to do it because it's pleasing. Yeah. All right. So that's one way, and it was much longer about it than I expected to say, but that's one way in which one could transform a narrative that one is telling oneself about how bad I am at staying fit or how bad I am at athletic endeavors or whatever. You could transform that narrative into, oh, I've been so busy. Maybe I'll just rest a little bit before I take my walk. Switch it up. Uh, change your own habit of mind. Multiple stories about the same situation. It really actually is, uh, what are we paying attention to? What details are we paying attention to? And how do we actually um, purposefully or unconsciously shape the narrative of those details. And it can be quite purposeful or it can be unconscious. I would assert that the unconscious narrative is the one that tends to spiral into suffering. Maybe not. So we're busy becoming aware of our stories and throughout the day, we're telling ourselves stories about what's going on, how wrong other people are about what they do and how they do it or how good or bad you are at things. So here's the challenge to you. Start noticing what you're telling yourself about everything. Just notice the internal narrative. 
it's important to be aware of what these stories are and how they're affecting your happiness. If the story is starting to make you unhappy with your life, intervene. Start becoming aware of your stories and notice them throughout the day. And then notice when you're getting stuck in the story, spinning it around in your head. Or that is, I could have, or I should have, or I want to, or I'm going to. That's the spin. That's my version of my spin. <laughs> Especially the could have, should have part. Oh, or some other person shouldn't have done this or could have done that. Can go on and on that way, making one frustrated, unhappy with that person. And then we project all kinds of stuff onto that person. When we get hooked on a story, it's hard to break away from it. But becoming aware of it is actually the most important thing. Becoming aware of being hooked right there is where the pivotal moment lives. So what can we do? When we're hooked on a story, it can be very difficult to slip out of that trap. Sometimes we actually have to ask for support from the outside. Reality check. Tell that story to somebody else and go, do you believe me? <laughs> and a, a dear friend will help you see, will help you see through the narrative. Mm. Sometimes the stories seem so real and so solid that I can't let it go. So then we'll recall the words of the Buddha in, like clouds in an empty sky or like bubbles in a stream or like a bolt of lightning in the empty sky or like a dream, you know, let that narrative have the flow of bubbles in a stream, for example. So regard it that way. It doesn't mean that it's false. It just means that it's not solid. We recognize that it is just something that we're playing in um, discursive thinking that actually has true and palpable emotional and physical results. That's the mind-body connection, of course. You, you see it. You feel it. So, as well as seeing it as bubbles in a stream or like a bolt of lightning in an empty sky, the next thing one can do, um, catching ourselves in the spin, the next thing one can do is not act on the story. Even if I'm caught up in it, it doesn't mean I have to lash out at someone or run away, which is more my tendency, or distract myself. Uh, just sit with the story and notice how it's making you feel. Notice the physical sensations. Notice that you're caught, you're hooked, I'm hooked. Don't act. Just stay with the awareness. So now we're back to what is this and what is the basis of this. Another way of being with the story is to drop below the story. Become aware of the moment as it is, which includes the unfolding of the story. Without interpretations, this is the crucial part, without interpretations, without judgments, without preconceptions, stories will still come up and we can notice them and not get hooked by them. Or 
if we do get hooked by them, we notice that, and we can loosen the grip on that, coming back to the present moment. So, that's pretty advanced practice, and everybody who's involved in Zen is capable of doing that. That's at least in part what's always happening during Zazen, coming back to the present moment, and awareness of body and breath and mind. Another aspect, and this is something that I also referred to last week, another aspect of working with getting hooked is to set the intention, establishing bodhicitta, awakening mind, the mind of awakening, the mind of compassion, and this actually then flavors the rest of the activity. Last week we talked about it as shoshin, beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. Quiet sitting combined with strong intention applied to everyday life with actual circumstances, with actual other people bringing awareness to those activities. So now that I've been kind of bad-mouthing stories, I have to say, on the other hand, stories are actually really helpful. It's helpful and good. <laughs> so I'm going to set us up for a fall practice period with a comment about stories, particularly stories as folklore, storytelling, and story listening go together. So stories as folklore, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, for children and young adults, there's a lot of what we would call moral education or moral formation that happens through stories. And this all also happens in many uh, religious contexts with the, uh, stories that are handed down as part of the liturgical calendar. So Zen practice works at the roots of consciousness. We know this from our Zazen, where um, according to what we have been taught, the possibility of human goodness, bodhicitta, your already existing awakened heart-mind lies at the roots of consciousness. So Zen practice, as in becoming stable, allowing us to uh, observe and um, observe karma or see through karma, leads us to dharma, therefore ethical behavior. So during this practice period, we'll be taking a look at the story called Baijong and the Fox that has quite a lot to do with causation, understanding the roots of causation. And uh, this is actually one of the deepest stories we have about ethical conduct and moral development. Storytelling can be an important teaching device. So what does Zen actually have as a moral education. We, you know, we have the precepts, the ethical precepts that are guidelines by which we live, 
but in a way you kind of have to already um, be in touch with your awakened mind to receive the precepts fully right so what is it that allows us to create that opening where um, ethical behavior and moral um, moral education can occur kind of seamlessly within the teachings and I would have to say that moral education, ethical behavior, cannot be separated from awakening. They are, in a, in a way, equivalent. Once awakened, um, even the inkling of awakened, because you probably will say, well, I'm not awakened. <laughs> so even the inkling of uh, awakening mind occurring within you is itself uh, your um, bodhicitta in action and is itself already the ethical standard by which you might live. Hmm. I'm making reference right now to an article uh, called Zen and the Art of Storytelling. Hmm. And I'll read this last paragraph to you and maybe we can open to some conversation. As indicated previously, the connection between Zen consciousness and non-duality, along with moral education, is that the recognized moral qualities of compassion, generosity, kindness, care, being responsible, all arise spontaneously from Zen consciousness. There's many, many paragraphs that led up to that paragraph. And we'll take a look at this during practice period. But um, the summary basically is that uh, as far as Zen tradition has occurred in our own lives, uh, Zen practice and the training of our practice and the transformation that comes along with it is functionally moral education. We'll engage with this, and part of the engagement with this is the act of uh, noticing our narrative as it's unfolding. First step, then noticing when we're hooked. <clears throat> Maybe I'll start uh, the our closing routine and in a bit open up to questions and comments from you. Um, we do the four vows next, I think. Beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Those very four vows actually tell the whole story. I'm, I'm tempted to erase this recording and just do the four vows again and again and again, because they tell the whole story right there. <laughs> 